Hey guys, welcome to episode four of the Codex West podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Henry Quivola. (laughs) And John Robert Paglino. Just a a quick reminder, (laughs) we can can be found on iTunes and Stitcher under Codex West Podcast. If you could subscribe and leave reviews, it'd be a big deal for us in terms of increasing viewership, getting us some traction, possibly sponsors, so on and so forth. Um, We're switching up the format a little bit today. Uh, We are going to go ahead and do away with the personal segment because nobody wants to hear about us, um, and we understand that. (laughs) And we're going to kind of roll it into the philosophy segment so we get to talk about ourselves in a more interesting way. Um, uh, that being said, today we are going to be talking about the just finished season three of Twin Peaks, the possible Woo! monopolization of marijuana, and Los Lonely Boys' new album. Um, let's get into it. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna so for the Twin Peaks section, I'm gonna go ahead and preface this whole section with uh, spoilers because the even though the idea of spoiling anything is like esoteric and incomprehensible as 18 hours of anything written by David Lynch is. <laughs> Um, <laughs> kind of laughable. Hours. Yeah, I mean it's just a of lot life. of David Lynch. Um, <laughs> Twin Peaks: The Returns last episode aired last night. Uh, we've all been watching it. I think Johnny's a little bit behind on account of Eurotrip, but uh, Mark and I are like diehard Twin Peaks fans, so we've kind of. I'm been... not even diehard, but I did see the last episode. So yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. I, that means we're yeah, all. You don't least... have to worry about spoiling anything for me. Okay, good. Not that <laughs> I wasn't pretty much impermeable. That would have been like a anyway. really weird thing for you to do to like show up to the podcast knowing that you're gonna get spoiled and then being like, "Hey guys, like, don't <laughs> spoil." <laughs> yeah. like, uh, I know you want to talk about this last episode, but like, don't no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. So we've been uh, we've been kind of chomping at the bit to do this segment, and hopefully we do it justice. Uh, although I'm I'm pretty sure we could just do like a whole separate podcast about like Mark and I's stupid Twin Peaks theories. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have way too many. Today we're going to try to pin down kind of exactly what the show is about, um, talk about Kyle MacLachlan's insane performances, and kind of get where the season and the show uh, on the whole place in the pantheon of great TV. Um, so uh, where do you guys want to start? I think that um, like starting with Kyle MacLachlan is, is a really great way to talk about the show at the beginning. Like, Is it MacLachlan play- or McLaughlin? How do you pronounce McLaughlin. it? McLaughlin. Mac- I- McLaughlin. McLaughlin. But, but, but now we're all pronouncing it differently. Uh, <laughs> pour the man a glass of milk. Why don't we just call him Kyle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it Mc, McLaughlin? McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Okay. Oh my god, not with the G with Like the there's C, a clock in the middle, yeah. I'm, I'm calling him Coop. Suck my McLaughlin. <laughs> okay, so there we go. So, um, he has been kind of obviously the standout of the whole season when it comes to performance. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's... Him playing, I, I went back and before watching the finale, I watched a couple of the really early episodes. So, like, the first, like, three or four episodes I watched. And, um, yeah, to, because the whole thing is it's 18 hours. You kind of have to remember. Yeah, of course. The, you know what I mean? I, re- I went back and I watched those episodes and I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that the woman with the, you know, the flesh covering her eyes was in the earlier episode. Yeah, she was, like, in the machine that. room that was, she was like, my mother's coming. Yeah, in the tower yeah, thing, yeah. In, in the ocean. But so, yeah, Kyle MacLachlan, though, the entire time has been just outstanding, particularly, in my opinion, I love him. I love him as Dougie. I don't know how you make a role 
where you don't do anything so compelling. Yeah, just literally, <laughs> he has none of his own lines. It's all just, like, the repeated last word of whatever sentence the previous character said, and he, exactly. he really sells it, being, though. And he has, like, no motivations or intentions. He's just being, like, ushered around by anybody else. So for, like, an actor, I don't know how you even arrive at, like, I mean, I guess the whole idea is you're not playing a character, it's like you're just a husk, but man, did you play the husk well. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, like, it was the, like, I found that to be some of the most compelling. Yeah, at first, like, I I thought that, like, uh, I was super impressed just because of how much I love, like, Kyle MacLachlan and, like, Dale Cooper in general. Yeah. And then it, it just, like, sort of evolved into understanding, like, this is this is actually just like acting on an, a new level that I have not experienced before. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I, 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 it's, it's very strange to watch it because he really does. I mean, you put it perfectly. He doesn't say anything on his own. He is always repeating the person before him. It's to say he has lines is not real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's like the main character of the show. Yeah. Right. Listen to the de facto protagonist. For 17 episodes. What, 16? No, he comes out of the thing in the 16th episode. Yeah. The 16th hour-long David Lynch episode is when the main character finally shows up. And it's not, like, like, until (laughs) the end of the episode either, so... Yeah, exactly. It's so ridiculous. But, yeah, I thought that that was a great way... I mean, this is also going to lead into some of our later conversations about what the show really is. Yeah. Because, you know, you know... The vast majority of the season, Kyle McLaughlin's, Kyle McLaughlin's, like, you know, trademark character has just been kind of, like, trapped inside of this, like, avatar yeah. of Dougie Jones. And I think that ma- it made it so much fun for me because I also thought there was this long, continuing tension when he was going to come out. Yeah, wait, is he is he, is he is he is he back yet? Like when he drank yeah, coffee when he drank coffee for the first time, I was like, oh, no, for oh, sure, yeah. for sure. I was like, oh yeah, this is going to do it. This is going to do it. I was the I, I felt the exact same way. And I had a lot of fun with that kind of uh, um, excitement regarding like, oh my god, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? And after so many blue balls on it, like him actually, you know, putting the fork into the electric socket. Oh yeah. It was really great. I, I thought that was <laughs> I, perfect. That's all I wanted for him to be able to come back. I didn't understand like uh, why people who watch football games like scream at the TV until that moment. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, you know what's really funny? The the moment that actually made me scream at the TV was when Norma and Ed finally oh yeah I, I literally was like yes thank god just <laughs> nutting I everywhere so yeah i was i was so into that but so i know that johnny has something to yeah say for about sure Kyle mclaughlin's uh performance and crickets johnny uh, uh my, i'm having technical issues but um what'd you ask <laughs> we know you have some stuff to say about yeah. kyle mclaughlin's performance yeah i think um it has what I have to say probably has to deal with uh, the larger theme that I have about. Well, then we can the also show. yeah blend it into Segway. Yeah, yeah segue. well, so I think um, where the first seasons of Twin Peaks was sort of a satire on soap operas and the primetime dramas of that era. Um, mm-hmm. This. And it being on Showtime makes sense because this is like clearly a satire of prestige golden age drama. And that is realized on um, a couple levels. One is in the photography 
it's like they're using the same camera and lighting from um oh god ray donovan yeah it seems oh, like is that you what know, it is, is well is i don't know i'm just saying the, like the show at least at the effect. level of style yeah, yeah i know exactly sure. what you're totally. talking about yeah yeah right it also um, yeah it looks like homeland in that same way you're right yeah yeah well just like it's coloration <laughs> no i'm just talking about its dreariness that's all i mean yeah oh okay well there's that and then i think there's um to his performance there's like we were talking on the podcast that didn't make it out for other technical issues but um and you have a show like fargo where ewan mcgregor is doing multiple roles or i don't know you have the prestige where christian bale's doing this you know he's playing a twin or something you know Mm -hmm. like there's lots of it's become this sort of like cliche that if you're a good actor you can do multiple performances personalities or perform yeah right and i think the idea here was to do something really to kind of make fun of that because we have uh you know (laughs) evil evil cooper is just such a stereotype that (laughs) but it's done with such like uh panache you know that like it's yeah becomes sort of compelling to watch and really you know twin peaks was always sort of about another level of satire was uh like you know khaki wearing white america yeah <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and you know that's generally who watches um prestige tv demographically yeah. and that is just being completely mocked i think with the dougie jones character um where you you have this there's all this like gravitas and sense of importance with his character because he's <laughs> the center of the plot but he's just like <laughs> yeah. he's blank and i think that's sort of a stand-in for um the viewer in a way because we can watch the show and think like oh it's so great but when it comes time to talk about it, most people are going to just rely on platitudes they've heard or just sure. um, descriptors that are the sorts of words like a tour de force or yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> like, think, like anyone who like really desperately wants to uh, like be recognized as like a David Lynch fan or something and just can't like actually they just don't have the words for it. Yeah, and Lynch is the exact kind of person to want to fight against empty um, praise. Or yeah. empty yeah, an analysis. Um, totally. This show really goes out of its way to put you in plotless scenarios. Or there's just yeah. so many ways in which, if you're looking at it through the level of plot or narrative, you're gonna come out completely unsatisfied and yeah. empty-handed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, for sure. Um, and so there's also a sense in which the Dougie Jones character, I think, is supposed to clues you into trying to take a like a buddhist meditative um view on watching the show well he's also he's also i mean david lynch is obsessed with transcendental meditation as like a creative tool Oh, I mean, like well, that's, person, it's yeah. almost, it's oh, just you didn't even emergent. Know that? No, just you emergent. You didn't even know that? Oh, no. that's like a yeah. huge thing that he always, he always uh, propounds is that meditation is so good for the creative process. And that's also that overarching theme, theme of uh, uh, Tibet and the tulpas and all of that. Yeah, sure. 
uh, fits exactly in and just before the we fact that there's the you know what were you gonna say jacob i was gonna say before we get into that like while we're still on the dougie jones i also don't think it's coincidental that like the dougie jones like family the nuclear family is the only like plot line that ever actually gets a resolution that's like anywhere near satisfying <laughs> yeah, it's a, where it's like, it's actually, and it's yeah. it's like uh, the the whole idea of like the if the viewer is like a proxy for or if Dougie's a proxy for the viewer, like the only like actual satisfying ending is one of complete artifice, where the like the Dougie that goes back to his family is just not is manufactured. That makes that's, sense. That's a good point. I kind yeah, of thought like something too, like trying to take um, a really like blank mind approach to watching this stuff <coughs> and just letting the images roll over you is that um, there's some, you know, the ending in terms of uh, <laughs> narrative material is, there's nothing. Like, I mean, there, you know, yeah, you get it's a, a void. Yeah, yeah it's just, it, there's so, there's so many uh, answers that you have left. But, so I think what was similar um, to this ending was The Sopranos, where I know with David Chase, the idea of what he was doing with The Sopranos ending was that where you wanted um, like a, a violent end to Tony. Um, you've been watching him all these years, and so he was just sort of making a mockery out of delighting in someone's um, criminal behavior and then wanting satisfaction for that person who gave you delight over years and years. Um, and so there was a sense in which the narrative was being, you know, the rug was being pulled under your feet because it was supposed to make you look back at yourself. And I think that's what's happening here in Twin Peaks, except instead of just, like, trying to get, you know, make a a piece of satire out of, um, you know, the audience's own hypocrisy, it's more just, like, if you were really looking for the answers this whole time in terms of, like, a plot perspective, you're watching it wrong. Well, there's, um, I, you know, what's funny about it though, like I, I know exactly what you're saying, but in that, um, in the in the concluding two episodes, I mean, you didn't watch episode seventeen; you only watched eighteen, and you had missed kind of some of the episodes. Yeah, I, I'm actually, taking this too from just reading actual, a lot. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. And 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 I had read, um, it, totally, and I've read a couple of criticisms that uh, I've read one particular take on it that gives a really cohesive statement of the ending plot like what exactly is going on you know what i mean because when we're talking about something surreal there is a you know there's obviously the conversation about like what's real and what's not and like where these actually fall in some sort of narrative particularly when the entire series they like you know the this entire season has been the, like the narrative has been told in such a disjointed manner as i mean and that's actually to johnny's point about it being a critique on prestige television like, you can't catch up someone on Twin Peaks. No, it's not possible. Do you know what I mean? No. It's right. not possible. And there's no, like, previously on Twin Peaks. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there isn't, That no. would be the most bizarre thing in the world. It's like a wasted <laughs> you know? opportunity, really. So, to that point... Yeah, I... it might have been... There actually might have been a lot of fun to be had with making previously on Twin Peaks. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, totally. And I, I think, yeah. like, on, the, on Johnny's point, too, like, it's... I, it's either a counterpoint or just like proof that I'm the exact kind of viewer that Johnny's talking about. But like my, I want to get into the like what we think the show is generally speaking about. Um, like the satirical elements are, I, I think more like they're 
present upon Johnny's mentioning them, but they're not like the point of the show. I think that like Twin Peaks is primarily David Lynch's like thesis on like the the Reaganomics of evil. Like how <laughs> amazing trickle down, down evil. evil. No, but like seriously, that how events like the detonation no, of the I'm, I'm, I'm with you, bro. I'm like in no, like an episode eight, bomb. like the de- yeah the detonation of the first yeah. nuclear bomb have these devastating effects that are entirely outside of their use and their time simply simply by like the sheer magnitude of their implication. How something that happened in New Mexico yeah. in 1945 is the genesis of a series of tragedies that serves as the foundation of the poisoning of a town in Washington in 1989. Like, uh... Yeah, yeah. Nice. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's what it's like, I mean, loosely if you're, about... Yeah, if you're, getting, if you're yeah. looking at it from, like, the lens of, like, uh, like, uh, David Lynch is making trying, fun of you. explain it. Yeah. <laughs> His quantum yeah. theory. <laughs> the, the quantum lens theory yeah there's like yeah, there's exactly. also this like super heavy-handed implication that humans are responsible for the rapid proliferation so like even though there's this sort of sense of cosmic evil like this lovecraftian evil that is yeah, put yeah, forth yeah. in the show um mm-hmm. with the, the like recurring motif of electricity as being the super ominous thing and also very clearly how these entities like travel quickly um yeah. it's the implication that humans are responsible for the proliferation pr- that pr- t- proliferation of- proliferation <laughs> <laughs> thanks dad yeah <laughs> <laughs> i got you i got you baby there's um, also this like uh rockabilly sense of otherworldness or like that there are other worlds you know yeah. what i mean well that's a whole other and the last the last actually, episode even yeah. supposes that there's a third one that has not been like like another right. one that's closer to actual reality so like well, see this is actually the thing so i read an interesting account of what's going on there that i found really interesting because okay so um diane and cooper roll up to mile marker 430 on the highway before they get transferred into this other place yeah okay and uh at the beginning in the first episode that's when where the, the thing giant happens. Well, when the giant says to Cooper while, while they're in the black and white, when they're in the tower, yeah, right? And, um, excuse me, he says to Cooper, remember 430, okay, so mile marker 430. Yeah. He then says, remember Richard and Linda, okay? Yeah, which are So they? Richard and Linda are their names when they're in, in this, this other, other place. place. yeah. And then he also says, kill two birds with one stone, or two birds with one stone, which is w- the, which David Lynch's character, which uh, Gordon Cole, reveals to be the last thing that cooper said to him before he disappeared yeah it just sounds that you're like a conspiracy theorist when like just like me listening to you like connect all these things together it just sounds like it's which is sort of my point i thought which the I show mean, that's is like all, part of it that's right? like the joy that's, that's, that's what i meant to say is that like the paranoid because um, yeah. like this this show something. starts with like a fairly typical murder mystery setup and then it ends and like this like this conspiratorial sense of like otherworldness and we have to like make all, connect all these dots to get a theory out it's of it. It's like lost if lost were good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think like, so, <laughs> wait, what do you mean? To, what do you <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I think the show like just my experience with it was it was, you know, sort of trying to say something about um truth and mystery. Um and that you know, sometimes just the truth is unreachable. And um, as we continue on the path trying to connect dots that ultimately we're never going to have enough evidence to connect, um, we start 
really reaching into crazy territory. And it always just felt like watching this really elaborate, surreal um, display of a descent into the fringes of conspiracy thinking. Johnny's, Johnny um, is skeptical of my interpretation. <laughs> of <this. laughs> no, it's just interesting. It just it says more to me about like, yeah, like Lynch's own like self obsessions than like uh, anything about the quality of the show itself. You know what I mean? I don't know. And anyway, like like I said, we yeah. we might actually end up doing another like brief segment, or maybe Mark and I will do like a little spin off episode just talking about Twin Peaks. <laughs> I would love to do a Twin Peaks. But onto the <laughs> you should, yeah. Honestly, yeah, we yeah, should actually probably just do that. We should do, yeah, that. yeah okay, plan. But onto okay. the uh, the quality of the show, where where do you guys see this ranking in the uh, like the pantheon of great TV? Because right now, for me, that's just like Twin Peaks has will always be in my top three, and this season has just like sort of cemented that place for me. I think it's like. Breaking Bad, Leftovers, Twin Peaks, in no particular order. It's funny because the thing is that I really, really love TV. Like, you know, I'm, a, I'm really huge about TV, even more than movies, right? Yeah. And so the thing is that it's funny because Twin Peaks definitely fought, like, you know, if, I, I don't know about ranking and everything, but it's like one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite shows that I've watched. I've had more fun watching Twin Peaks than just about any other show, right? Yeah. But the thing is that it's really funny to compare it to the other shows that I thought were great. Oh, like to think about the to wire compare them is just like so. And like yeah. to think about the wire and Twin yeah. Peaks, right? <laughs> like those are that's like a hysterical comparison in my mind. And so it's the funny thing is that um, I mean I think that this I think that the return these last eighteen parts were outstanding. I, I really really enjoyed it. And I think to even say that, like, oh, I thought it was amazing, right? It's like, I don't know what actually happened, but I can tell you I had a hell of a lot of fun watching it happen. Well, for me, I, I think right? it's like, you know what I mean? if the but whole like, idea is, like, great art speaks to some greater truth, then, like, this, the truth that Twin Peaks speak to, to me, besides, like, outside of the, the satirical context that Johnny's talking about it, if you're taking the show ser- seriously, the truth that it, it seems to speak to me is of, like, this great cosmic incomprehensible evil that's just like david lynch just has this way of capturing things that are completely beyond understanding in a way that makes them feel very like like very real and very unsettling and like i like like i said in the last episode i'm like kind of a horror junkie and like that kind of lovecraftian horror is when you can it's it seems to me that like most people who try to capture that on film make the mistake of like, oh, it's this big scary monster at the end. Where in this, you're never really presented like with the face of evil because that's not how yeah, that kind of like, evil it's works. Like the, the, the most evil thing in this season was like that weird teapot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, like Philip Jeffries, the teapot. Here, David Bowie, the teapot. Yeah, it's just like the really evil thing, yeah. and I totally get what you mean. I, I really. It's like that. an evil that you're you're powerless to even understand, let alone confront in any way. So that's like Perfect. that's the greatness of Twin Peaks to me. That's why I think it's well, in uh, it's in my top three for sure. Johnny, what about you? Yeah, I mean it's fine. <laughs> you're a fucker. Fuck you. You're such a punk. I'm booting you from the Discord. You're done. <laughs> yeah, dude. Okay, so this no, is it's good. It's just like, yeah. now. like Johnny's kicked out. No, go ahead. My best friend is Jacob. Yeah. Johnny, Johnny is replaced. <laughs> I don't know if it's in a, a pantheon of anything. It's probably just in a class of its own, doing its own. It's yeah. like, like uh, 
I don't know. It's like uh, a a visual poem for eighteen hours that <laughs> it, that's like uh, like an elaborate expression of fan service, which is great. I mean, like I had a lot of fun watching it, um, and I think it was a completely um, unique experience. But it's just not. It just doesn't have the beats that feel like television and so i don't know I think that's the, it's not that's even worthwhile kind of to point. so he is yeah, actually uh, cr- just last thing on this last thing on this subject i guess because we should probably move on but the thing is that david lynch did say in like an interview relatively recently you know i mean I, whatever you want to make of this he's like no this isn't a series of television this is an 18 hour movie yeah right yeah feels more and that makes sense and the whole thing is that it would be impossible to binge that show but it's built for binging. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's that's almost like another factor of it. It's like it's 18 hours long, so you can't watch it in a day. But you have to really watch it in a day to get a perspective, right? And so he's saying, listen, I'll give you six hours to sleep, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But you're going to take a whole day to do this, right? And so I think that that's an interesting way of thinking about it as well. Okay, uh, so, yeah, getting into our political segment, which is about weed. Um, (laughs) It's a little more nuanced than just being about weed, but it's about weed. Is that true? Smoke the herb, man. (laughs) You gotta smoke the herb. (laughs) All right, so on to our uh, politics segment. Um, We're we're covering something a little bit different this week, mostly, like, in the interest of not talking about the Trump cabaret or, like, uh, virulent anti-Semites. <laughs> Trump, ca- Trump Cabaret was a nice, good, good Jacob with uh, Yeah, you spent a, you you went out and you spent some money on those words. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to buy a vowel. <laughs> I'm just gonna ignore you guys. Um, GQ, uh, th- that beacon of profound journalistic insight, recently published an article about the the possibility of like it's this. Pretty good though cannabis conglomerate that is in the early stages of like setting up a patent troll on weed varietals so uh, i'm gonna let johnny take point on this one um i'm sure mark's gonna have a lot of legal insight into exactly how these patents work and what might come of this yeah. but johnny i think you I basically have yeah this is I have a baby. lot of questions for mark uh on this but i'll just um yeah it just it it's it's like one of these like uh, investigatory articles where the you know the plot thickens <laughs> yeah. you, you follow the trail of crumbs that gets you to yeah, down the rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. the trail of weed the crumbs weed hole. <laughs> yeah, the trail of keef <laughs> you could take the blue pill or the green pill <laughs> wow. okay well can't believe i just said that um, <laughs> dream daddy was four episodes ago now dude you gotta it's time to curb that curb that instinct Once you had daddy, you can't go baddie. Um, <laughs> good lord, I'm done. Right. <laughs> it doesn't mean it means I need to keep talking about something else. So, um, anyway, <laughs> uh, basically, uh, this journalist Amanda Lewis, she um, is like at this weed convention in Las Vegas, and she's talking to people, and she finds this guy um, who's making a 3D visualization of thousands of kinds of different pot that are currently. Um, in the public domain on the market and she's like well it's sort of an interesting project why you're doing that and he tells her about this company called biotech institute that's is 
been registering patents on uh, the cannabis plant. Three had been granted already, um, and two were pending. And they were utility patents, which to me I thought was pretty interesting because when I looked into it, there's, you know, there are three types of patents. One is specifically a plat a plant patent. Um, so the fact that um, these you know that you want to go for a utility patent is interesting because it well, has because more that's, it's about process that's like a utility patent is about is generally about process or a particular way of organizing matter like uh, we can well get that's that what yeah i have a, i have this quote i want to read about that but we can get into that later um yeah for sure but um so this was it's basically it's the strongest intellectual property patent um that you can have for crops and uh when you think about it weed is a 40 represents a 40 billion dollar industry it's the second most valuable crop behind corn oh is that jesus um, christ that's wow. insane yeah so what? there's a yeah so is the that fact, real is that yeah. that's real yeah it's real I didn't, wow that's <laughs> it's crazy. more it's more valuable than wheat wow yeah. smoke weed, wheat weed over wheat yeah, yeah baby exactly. wow so um <laughs> So this is a problem that someone's patenting these things. Well, you can there's there's both sides, and I'll explain both sides. Like obviously, if you're an independent grower, you know um, this is sort of scary. Or if you're someone in, you know who's uh, cynical about pharmaceutical companies, um, the fact of someone's um, issuing or like applying and being granted these patents is kind of scary because one, it can theoretically cover all strains if you're like a if you're on the cynical side, you could see it covering all strains and patents could um, limit genetic diversity. And because when you think about weed, usually you just think about, oh, you smoke weed, you get high, but there's all types of strains and they all have different effects. You know, obviously some give you head highs, some give you body highs, some um, increase appetite specifically. A lot don't even get you high. There's just all sorts of things that weed. Yeah. Um, and if you have someone already registering patents that cover all strains, um, that l- could potentially limit the medical research that could go, or just research in general that could go into discovering all these. There's so many types of strains that. Yeah, and that's like the, one of the most important aspects is the is the the issue with the medical research for sure. Right, but if you're on the um, the side of maybe like what biotech institute represents, you could make the argument that um, you know it's a pharmaceutical company. What pharmaceutical companies do is um, they use the profit, profits that they get off of their patent and drugs to fund new research, which is just, like, blatantly mm-hmm. true. I mean, it's just, like, it's true about um, pharmaceutical companies. There has, yeah. you know, they're, because patents only last for such, for, like, a limited period of time, um, they're really incentivized. Yeah. Um, Especially 20, these utility plants are 15 right to 20 years. Yeah. So, um, but you know, the argument is that it's actually so short. 20 years is way shorter than copyright. Right. Copyright is life of the author plus 70 years. Jesus Christ. Oh yeah. That's yeah. Dude. So that can be like hundreds. It can be like literally 200 years, you know, depending on when you made the copyright. Oh, but good yeah. Lord. But yeah. so weed is, um, special and it's, uh, patenting because it turns out biotech Institute has only really spent about $250,000, um, per patent. And I tried to read some of these patents. I don't know if you ever got a chance to, Mark. But I tried um, to, but it's all, you also so, I, just to let you know, 
to, in order to be a patent attorney, literally there is a separate test to become a patent attorney. Yeah, and no, you have it, to have you have to have taken engineering classes in like. Yeah, in no, there's setting. no. I, okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes me feel better because these things were like at at some levels just completely indecipherable. Well, they're huge. They're like thousand page documents. They're just endless. Yeah, sure. And from my glossing over it, it appears to me that um, about ten. 10 varietals were being patented 10 to 20 per patent were being um i guess what would you covered i guess covered yeah whatever yeah covered Um, covered is a good word yeah and it what's interesting these only each apparently each patent only costs like on average two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they cover like 10 to 20 um strains or not strains Mm -hmm. but varietals i guess um whereas like for monsanto um because their patents involve GMOs, um, generally each patent costs $136 million. So you can see how <laughs> the, 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 cost, in the wrong business. Yeah, <laughs> the, the cost of entry is a lot easier. And so it makes it's very peculiar why. I guess it's because so it's like a few, uh, budding industry. Oh goodness! Oh, God. All right. Well, I've you've just redeemed my bad joke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks. But um, yeah. So it's very peculiar why fewer um, corporations have tried to um, fund patents because they're so pretty much easy to get to, as opposed to other types of um, crop patent uh, crop patents. So. Um, it's interesting because I wanted to talk about Monsanto a little bit because this is the obvious analog. This is where you can yeah. understand maybe if this sort of fear about um, companies going out of their way to patent um, weed is um, like hysteria or if it's something to actually, you know, that will actually hurt um, the growth of the market. Yeah. Or just like, or may, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it will be worse for consumers is really the end game question. And um, the main litigate, and maybe Mark, do you know about Monsanto at all? Uh, I could. I mean, not like not. I, you can give me some more information, but I, I get. I have something to say on the issue, but you can definitely. Okay, yeah, this is sort of the last thing that I'll say, yeah. and then because like the article itself, I think is like a fun read because it's just that, well, as she's going down the rabbit hole, like she runs into Montel Williams. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, and there's that whole scene where she's talking with Montel Williams about weed, the weed industry. Yeah, really because he like create like I guess there's like some people, some celebrities who've got into the weed game, mm-hmm. but he's just basically all the people that are involved in Biotech Institute are also involved in this Abaddon Wellness Center that Montel Williams created, and so it's just like a really surreal read into. Um, it's like the, watching Zodiac, that that movie, the Dave yeah. Fincher movie, right? You get right. just like keep winding yeah. down, like. <laughs> yeah, it's just good investigative journalism yeah. that has yeah. like you know just it's just like fun. It's fun, mm. but um, the last thing I'll say is that um, before I, I, you know, I have a lot of questions for Mark, I guess. But the um, with Monsanto, there was the major case of um, import here was Bowman versus Monsanto, which. Oh, God. I can't exact... Basically, this guy... Um, oh, God. I'm not going to summarize the case. I'm just going to say the implications of the case were that uh, the Bowman side tried to use this thing called patent exhaustion, which is like patent rights. Um, they're only applied to the first sale. 
and then after that the patent um seizes you don't have to license anymore after the first um use um but so basically when the seeds get into um like let's say you buy the seeds from monsanto the idea with patent exhaustion means that once those plants um, make seeds themselves, that you are allowed to use those seeds without further licensing, right? Okay, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But did, wait, so do you know the outcome? Did they say that you are... So, no, no, yeah, I know the outcome. Yeah, the outcome is okay. that Monsanto said, well, you know, just like, um, you know, like with a book, yeah, you can buy a book and then resell that book. But if you make copies of that book... That's not how licensing works. I, what, so at, at any rate, what a yeah, ridiculous at, argument. But they yeah, won. No, yeah, Monsanto. That's fucked up. The the, yeah. the general thing with the Monsanto, like the reason that they've been the target of like so much, um, I won't say like persecution, but like uh, the reason that people really, yeah, like, yeah. people really hate them is because like generally what's happened with Monsanto and smaller farmers is farmers uh, essentially are like forced to buy their seeds, which are patented. Um, and then those farmers, instead of being able to, like, use the seeds from that crop in order to grow more crops, have to purchase more seeds from Monsanto. That's um, absolutely bizarre. And the, 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 other, the other outcome of the, that, those patents is that um, because of the way that, like, pollination works, sometimes seeds that are – so say you have two corn farmers that, are, that have fields that are adjacent to each other um, – if the if cross pollination occurs and seeds from the Monsanto farm start growing on seeds from the non Monsanto farm, Monsanto can then sue that farmer and have right. been they successful can, in can. doing so in many cases. Well, they have a this is I guess where the law is is that they they're allowed to, but because it was such an outrage, they've like made a pledge not so to like not if, do it if accidentally yeah. uh, like less than one percent of their patenting crops or you know that they can find yeah. that but i mean it's still just a pledge it's not into law yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just what they're deciding to do as a business right. in order to avoid the like backlash you know right now so like weed isn't like ever going to exactly work the way that like uh you know um Oh God! Like I yeah, does. I have very poor understanding of like the biology of weed growth. I don't know like how those like how pollination with those seeds work. I don't know if there are animals that. Well, because like, I don't, know, you know, I don't weed, think weed is never going to like. Pro- <laughs> like, like the how, thing like, is, weed. How weed like works from some sort of like. But yeah, no uh, one's like really growing. Cultural standpoint, right? That's what I well, mean. Well, yeah. I mean, weed isn't going to be like cross pollinated because it's mostly grown in like like you know yeah, huge it, warehouse sure yeah, you know? yeah because like, yeah better weed is gonna be like yeah no one's really like you yeah. know it's not good for weed to grow like on huge farms right like they need to be in like enclosed areas it's better if it's hydroponic which means that it wouldn't be you know it's better you know you have more control over it if you're growing it hydroponically and it, there's no reason not to so right. hydroponic makes the best poly- product right yeah so <laughs> a lot of these a lot of these um <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of maybe this monsanto stuff is like uh a little irrelevant i mean it's still interesting but it shows the um it demonstrates the power of the patent right and i yeah. think that's the most important thing and and i think and, yeah exactly and it definitely demonstrates that if like you're if you have a patent on a uh a plant and then it has a seed that there is um room for uh 
there's oh, very litigation. strong there's room for litigation, for litigation. Yeah. yeah and um oh god what's the other thing? so the, the the other argument is that um you know if you want to obtain a utility patent there's um criteria some of which is like the claim strain must be new and unobvious over existing strains this comes from the u.s patent and trade office it must be it must but, be novel Exactly, right. Saying, the strain yeah, must novelty. also exhibit markedly different characteristics from a naturally yep. occurring counterpart in its natural state, which is the novelty clause, which Aspects, means yeah. that novelty would seem that if plants are in the public domain, um, that is, like, there are plants that are basically already being sold in some fashion or being grown, and someone can, like, provide proof that they were growing it, um, that and those so theoretically yeah. shouldn't be... Um, patentable but people are still yes. going to try and this is sort of where i want to throw it to mark because i think you'd have more um knowledge than i do cool. um about what if how that novelty requirement works and if it's yeah. it, it, it's actually like the um the fail safe on this whole thing yeah so what i will say about uh what we're talking so specifically you utility patents and novelty so when it comes to when it comes to the article that we're talking about specifically, one thing that I found very interesting was that the journalist goes and speaks to this scientist in Washington, right, Washington State, that is trying to create like a, a, a database, a catalog, an index of all of these varieties of weed that are around. Because not, and we're not just talking about like AK-47 or like, you know, um, like how can I literally not even think of another weed strain right now? <laughs> That's very funny. Isn't there like, like a know, green crack? Bubble, gu bubble or, gum yeah. kush or whatever. Like I yeah. throw some words together. Hindi train I mean? wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Hippie wreck. But so. Um, Kosher kush. Is, yeah, kosher kush. Ooh. There's a whole, a whole market untapped. Kosher market for weed. But so the thing is that I don't think is it not kosher? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. As long as it's uh, like slaughtered humanely. How many humanely. animals died? Yeah. Yeah, can I have exactly. can I have my vegan weed, please? Jesus Christ. <laughs> but so okay, the idea is that this scientist in Washington is doing his best to try and catalog all the variety of these different strange strains. Now, when we talk about something like AK forty seven, we're actually talking about a wide variety of genetic plants right they all kind of fall into that category based on their mother plant or something like that or the way that I, I you know i don't actually know how this stuff works but the thing is from the from the article the way that it makes it seem i'm not trying to like <laughs> i don't know how this works but <laughs> let me talk about yeah, exactly, it exactly yeah exactly <laughs> but the thing is that um the idea is that if you go and you actually create a catalog of all of these different strains that are in existence right now you can also date when you have proved their existence, okay? Now, when a company like Biotech Industries, isn't that what they're called, right? But yeah. when a company like Biotech- Or Institute. Sorry, Biotech Bi Industries Biotech represents Biotech like Institute, LLC. an entire thing that you can invest in the stock market. But Biotech oh, Institute. Oh, be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. It's a way to Biotech think about it. Institute because it's yeah, an I mean, It's even more bland. Yeah. I mean? <laughs> it's about as bland as can be. Exactly. Because they don't want anybody to look at it. But so the thing right. is that um, what this scientist, this scientist's relationship with some of the uh, the weed entrepreneurs, seems to show that what he's trying to do is eventually 
challenge some of these utility patents by saying that they are not novel. In other words, that these patents existed as commonly used genetic material long before this person even applied for the patent. Due to, like, the illicit weed market, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Because the thing is that even if what's actually, and I'll tell you this, this is what's shocking about the way that patent law works in the United States. So you cannot, let's say that I make, uh, like, a new strain of weed, and I call it Godfather. I'm just making something up, right? You call it Godfather. So you've thought about this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I've played through every step, right? But so the thing is that um, you call it Godfather. If you want to try and trademark the name Godfather for a marijuana strain, you cannot trademark the name of a marijuana because the Lanham Act, which is the Trademark Act, okay, says specifically that you cannot trademark, you know, trademarks for illicit materials, okay? Huh. Which, and when we say illicit, we mean federally. Right, right, right. It doesn't matter, right. like, whether your state does. So, like, let's say you have Godfather weed and you're the only person in California with Godfather weed. You can't get federal protection for Godfather weed, but you could likely get California state-level protection huh. that doesn't actually protect you very well from someone in Colorado. Huh, okay. So, yeah, trying to use Godfather weed. Now, the thing is that that's a big problem. It's the same issue with, like, the way that banks work with weed money. You can't, like, put your money in banks because then the government can seize it because technically you're, you're, you know, trading in illicit material, you know, illicit substances, right? But the thing is that the Patent Act seems to not have that restriction, which I find really bizarre because that means that there's got to be patents floating around for like cocaine synthesis. So just because somebody like has them for the fuck of it in case it ever becomes legal or if somebody wants to do medical research on the use of cocaine or something. Yeah. Like that, right? So quite quick question for you. Um, yeah. I, is the implication here that like even though uh, biotech has purchased these these patents, is it possible that there's like a like a legal argument that the the actual nomenclature of the weed strains is would prevent them from upholding those patents. No, like so different. not exactly. Yeah, no, different. so that's a. Uh, these are actually two different things. The name is trademark, right? When right. We talk about the process or the or the so, genetics of it specifically. Like purple Urkel is a trademark. Yes, exactly. Okay. But, <laughs> but whatever. The, but the, the series of the series the chain of it's genes, genome. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's that's genome is different. the thing that you patent. Okay. Okay. Now the. I, so, and to point out here, but to bring it back to where we were at the beginning, the idea is that these people are trying to challenge these utility patents based on the issue of novelty. Now, the re- but like, why is it a big problem that biotech is buying this stuff? Up? Okay, so like, what does this actually affect? The idea is that biotech, the Biotech Institute, for example probably doesn't want to actually get into like the weed market per se Uh okay what they want to do is make money on how and licensing out these almost necessary patents okay because if i if i am a grower in california and i want to do something with my plants you know like some sort of genetic process okay like you know uh, or or i want to create some sort of strain or maybe i even think of it on my own right so, like, with copyrights, if you and I write the same poem, but I never heard your poem, my poem is still copyrightable. Mm-hmm. Patents don't work like that. Even just because I never heard of your patent and I came up with the exact same thing on my own, I still have to pay you a license. 
Okay. Gotcha. Right. So the yeah. So the idea is that this company is going to sit around and essentially just like kind of profit as people pass through it. So like, let's say you want to go and you want to start a weed business. You now have this major barrier to entry, which is you have to go to Biotech Institute and you have to license a bunch of patents from them because it would be almost impossible to start, you know, start yourself in this industry without using these patents. Right. So that's the, and this is what you call patent trolls, right? And I mean, this exists in everything. You know, there are, there are copyright trolls for music and for um, software in particular. I feel and like then, there's a really good Silicon Valley episode that we might want to like uh, oh my God. <laughs> refer so to the, in the show uh, well, notes or I something also, that'll give like I a also, fun explanation of patent trolling. I, I also wrote a paper on copyright trolling oh, in my law review. Can we put it so in like the, the show notes? Yeah, absolutely. We can put a link to it. Cool. Totally. That'd be it's dope. Called exclusive, it's called Exclusive Groove, and it's specifically about the um, Robin Thicke and Farewell Williams. I actually uh, think this is similar. Against. Like, this is really yeah, very a similar, similar issue because, like... Um, they're very similar. The idea with utility patents is, like, if you can um, you pick out some form DNA that's mm-hmm. novel to the plant genome, mm-hmm. well, then you get... you you're, patenting that dna which like will exist across many different varietals this kind of works yeah. the same with music that if you are able to patent like a mary had a chord percussion or a groove yeah you know yeah, that yeah. like covers all kinds of music like music Absolutely. doesn't work like pop music is pop music because the <laughs> the genetics of the song are popular people can recognize exactly. them. right right and so they, they it, also, it's the yeah. same kind of conundrum legally four four chords <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm wondering if uh, we should maybe uh, we're already at an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can. Uh, is there is there a place that you guys want to like uh, put a put a cap in this? Yeah, but yeah let me let me yeah, just I finish out the thought real quick. So I do want to say that the real pro- like what we're really getting at here is that the the fear that people have is um, number one not misplaced and generally deals with the issue that what's going on is that you have these kind of opportunists that see a particular industry starting to develop. This happened with software. When we first started getting into personal computing, all of these venture capital companies, I mean, there were you know particular uh, investment groups that specifically would go up and they would buy all the copyrights to literally like point and click. Yeah. Right? So like, that's a really good example. People tried to copyright the point and click interface, right? <laughs> But then there were a bunch of issues that ended up coming from that that I won't get into right now. But what I can say is that when you have a developing industry, you are very likely to see people try and uh, opportunize and exploit the intellectual property of that industry, right? Specifically, why? Because intellectual property is easily traded, number one. You can go and you can buy somebody out on their intellectual property. Or you can go and spend a small amount of money in order to develop what you know will be some of like the bare minimum intellectual property necessary for an entire industry and make yourself a gatekeeper to that industry right right so i and i i've read some good articles on the economic effects of patent trolling and the general idea is that you see a high spike in all licenses in that entire industry because there is an initial gatekeeper who has to license things in the first place. Right. Meaning that that license, the license that you need to pay to Biotech Institute, right? 
actually gets absorbed into the price for a later patent that you are going to license that's actually more novel. Okay? Does that make sense? Totally makes sense, There's somebody down the line here that's going to actually have something that they have invented that is brand spanking new. And and somebody else is going to want to use. Yeah. That license is going to cost more. Because in order to make that product, they might have had to license farther down the line. Gotcha. Okay. Right? And so that's the the idea is that you have a massive inflation on cost when you start adding these patent troll gatekeepers. That's like the economic effect. So the idea is in a in a um, in a budding industry like we, uh, the yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna the, yeah exactly. The issue is just that um, you're gonna see uh, you're gonna see it become much more difficult for small purveyors to be able to enter the market, and you're gonna have a later conglomeration of actors in the market and have an oligopoly over wheat. Do you see what I'm saying? Totally, yeah. All right, yeah, I think absolutely. that's that's a definitely like a nice, neat way to, to explain the implications of yeah. of this and move clean. on to our... That's what I needed. Clean. Got my hit, my legal <laughs> hit. Very unlynchian <laughs> of you. Uh, so the, for the last segment, the like I said earlier in the in the podcast in the introduction, we are we cut the personal segment for time constraint reasons, and yet are already over an hour. Uh, so failed on that front, but <laughs> uh, the we'll the get personal. It right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Um, Twin Peaks was a was was always a gambit. It was just yeah, that was yeah, that, was yeah, that needed to be done. Yeah, and I'm still, it's okay. I, I still have so much. So like, yeah, we'll do the separate episode. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. gonna be okay. <laughs> okay. But uh, uh, so I might have gotten a little bit mixed up in the intro. It doesn't look like we're actually talking about the new Los Lonely Boys album because that doesn't exist. The last album they put out was in <laughs> 2014. So obviously not talking about that. Uh, they but came actually, out with an album in 2014. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> like, That's going to be another whole podcast. Talk, I never wanted to talk about <laughs> Lost Lonely Boys. <laughs> I hate this joke. <laughs> uh, so what we're actually going to be talking about today is a, a recent Hazlitt article. I think it was published on August 11th um, by Stephen Thomas on the topic of loneliness, specifically lonely men, and how despite the proliferation of social media and like the, the infinite methods that we have of communicating with each other today, men are in fact lonelier than ever. Um, and can't find their dream daddies. It can't find dream daddies. <laughs> right. and that's, it's just going to be... Actually, gay men are at a... Uh, uh, they are the loneliest. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes, yeah, they are yeah, the, kind yeah, of makes sense. If you're yeah. a gay single man, you are at the, like, your suicide risk is at the highest. Yeah. Um, Just, so, you know, to yeah, Dream Daddy. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so all of the people in Dream Daddy were actually at high risk for yeah. suicide. <laughs> that game was about As well prevention. as the people playing it. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, though, Johnny, Johnny's got some some things to say regarding why this issue is actually important. Um, some stats he wants to get into, and then we're going to talk about some of our personal experiences with loneliness, wrapping that personal segment up into this, and uh, whether or not our our own issues sort of exist in the spectrum of problems that are covered in this article. So this is going to be like a group therapy, the podcast. <laughs> Well, um, hopefully let's not get too depressing, but it's a very depressing <laughs> subject. I think um, I wanted to – so this segment um, the is like a philosophy segment, but I think it, it we want it to be um, a sort of thing where we're talking about ish, like the day-to-day – like the philosophy – the day-to-day philosophizing that we do, that all of yeah. us do, where it's – Yeah, we, where it's actually thinking about useful. Our, <laughs> right, we're thinking about our lives, and I think anger last week was a really good way about how we think about our lives and – Terror is something that we have to think about all the time. So this is why I think we're 
uh, it's this is a natural common a natural way to combine these two segments is to think about um, personal philosophy while also still having some sort of philosophical rigor. And um, I don't know about you guys, but talking about like there's a certain sort of uh, taboo in talking about um, m- like a masculinity. Or in terms of like, or like a, a, a male emotionality, right? Because yeah, for sure. On the on the right, it's like the problem of um, socialization. Um, there's like we're gonna get into statistically. There's um, homophobia is actually one of the greatest um, risks to men's mental health, um, and that's like very much um, expressed on the right. If you're to talk about you know your emotional life, you're you know you're being a pussy or a fag. Yeah. Um, and on the left, if you're talking about male loneliness, you may, you know, on like extreme points of view, you're, you know, you have male privilege. Yeah. Why, so it's like your yeah, your like, loneliness is like, or your your emotional life is like invalid because you're not oppressed. Right. Because yeah, and this is a, another kind of problem um, because the idea is that we should all converge that you know. Um, <laughs> All lives matter in a way, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that you know that um, it's not good for and it's not it's not pro- you know it's progressive to talk about um, mental health at all, and um, we need to talk about uh, like there's because we don't talk about um, mental health for men, it's in a self exasperating problem, which we'll mm-hmm. see in the data too. So I think it's sort of like um, it's a tricky topic because a lot of people have really gut reactions, um, whether it's on the right or the left, whatever your perspective is. Um, And it's important to get into it and to be honest and open and look at the stats and look at your own life. So I think this is like the exact perfect topic to get into, um, to combine the two. But um, so this article I think is great. It starts off with – a kind of musing over the Chicago heat wave of 1994. Um, a lot of the people who died in it were men. And um, it was because no one told them that a heat wave was about to happen, so they couldn't prepare. And so this starts to bring up questions of social isolation. And what we would, in the article, one of the main points is that social isolation is not the same as loneliness. You can ha- you can be socially unisolated. You can have lots of friends. You have a wife. Um, that doesn't totally predict whether you're going to be lonely or not, or have feelings of loneliness, or report feelings of loneliness. Which nearly fifty percent of people report feeling lonely. And this is important. It's not just some oh pity me sort of scenario because the American Psychological Association says that. Um, we are at a loneliness epidemic. Loneliness is like the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it's um, a greater threat to in terms of health. In terms of, like, lethality, basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, or life expectancy, it, I guess, is the... Sure. And it's a greater threat in that way than something like obesity, which we are, like, clearly in an obesity epidemic as well. Um, se- a separate sort of thought is that if you're a middle-aged married woman you're actually the most likely to feel lonely um but for all other 
like um, demographics demographics men will categorize will be the common yeah yeah category so men have a so it's it's literally just it's middle-aged middle-aged women are lonelier than married than you have to middle-aged married women are more lonely than middle-aged married men but this problem is confounded because obviously the yeah and but it's also cast in doubt a little bit because um men are typically likely to not report that they're lonely because they don't want to express that they're lonely um, so that it's 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 like widely thought that even that um, fact or that that um, it's it's widely thought that men are underreporting. So what you're saying is men are How, not only better than women at being lonely, but also <laughs> <laughs> the but it's we're true, being yeah. humble about it is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Sure. Um, so the question is, why is this happening? Um, and like we were talking about before, it tends to be the way that boys are socialized. It's actually true that if you're um, six months old, you're more likely to cry if you, as a man than a woman, or I guess a boy as a girl, than um, if you are at the age of five, um, you're likely to be more emotional if you're a boy than a girl, hmm. which is, you know, just like contrary to common conceptions. But right. um, boys aren't shy about their friends until they hit 15 to 20 years old and then there's like a near universal shift in the ways that uh boys talk about their friendships as opposed to girls um studies show that men become less intimate with their friends um mostly due to um the socialization of emotional restraint so you're expected to not show emotions as a guy and because of homophobia you see um which is actually really interesting because in places where homophobe or sorry in places where being homosexual is not a taboo um it the it's actually more the case in those areas that um identifying yourself as a unemotional man increases because you want to identify against homosexuals right so in that sense homophobia is actually increased or it's there's actually a homophobia homophobic indicators are more prevalent yeah there's like a there's a a quote from this article that i think is like really emblematic of that point if you don't mind i just want to read it real quick Mm -hmm. um so there's a there's a point in the article where um this guy jason who was interviewed he was interviewed like two separate times like three years apart i think the first one he was like uh, 13 or 14 so um i'm quote Three years after his first interview, Jason, an individual who earlier in the article stated, sometimes two people can really, really understand each other and have a trust and respect and love for each other regarding his platonic friendship with a male friend, um, asked, this is three years after he said that, asked if he had any close friends and said no, and immediately adds that while he has nothing against gay people, he himself is not gay. So that uh, it like reads almost right. like something out of an Onion article, but it's like that's yeah, that's, yeah, that's totally like does. that's like the yeah, pre- oh like my god, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So you actually cool. see yeah. this too in like Middle Eastern countries, right? Oh, like, for sure. Um, you, uh, men hold hands in public. Yeah, and I they, mean, well, my and they stone men was, for kissing. My grandfather men. was like very yeah. Italian, and so would like you know walk holding his brother's hand or arm in arm with the, with his brother, and would kiss everybody on the cheek, like men and women alike. You know, it's yeah, it's totally a thing. Right. I don't think they stone 
homosexuals in Italy, though. No, 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 no. Okay. Is Italy not in the Middle East? I'm a little confused. I didn't know they were going down that road. Was he just gay? I don't know. Anyway, so. No, yes, we we uh, they kiss on the cheeks here, but um, where am I at? Okay, so uh, moving on. It uh, <laughs> so men, so women, women are likely to um, like. Let's say you're in a marriage, right? Yeah. Um, a woman or a man is most likely to say that the woman fulfills all of his intimate needs. A woman is more likely to say that her friends fill her intimate needs um which i think is interesting because women are also the social planners of a marriage generally right sure and so if you um which means that like men basically like they surrender the um this all of the social they basically let the wife deal with all the social planning which means that they don't get to they're less likely to hold on to um, social ties in the event of a divorce. Oh. Which means that if you're a married man, you are like, and you're divorced, or even worse, widowed, um, you are really likely to uh, be lonely. You're just like, you're, you're, uh, it's just like, you're more likely to be lonely. So, um, This is sort of also another aspect is that loneliness tends to be contagious. Um, If you have a friend who is lonely, um, your chances of also becoming lonely is increased by 52%. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, non-trivial. Yeah, no. Because uh, what happens is, like, let's say you have a lonely friend. They're likely to act in ways that are more cynical untrustworthy lashing out at the world and when you are exposed to um cynicism that's a very contagious kind of worldview because it i like at least in a philosophical level um there's a the first the first thing uh you realize when you enter into philosophical life is that everything can be doubted right and you see an entire political movement on the right really like form around this sort of thinking where it's like you know like everyone's militarizing it you know what i mean totally right but it's like that's just the base that's how you get into philosophy but it's such a gripping worldview that it's once exposed to it it's like and you're obviously going to take hold of it once you're exposed to it Mm -hmm. um because it's just a um fundamental feature of um, our being in the world and our um, ability or basically a fundamental feature of knowledge itself is that it can all be doubted but that's really um, without education you're never going to move past that really gripping belief um, but that is also a hallmark of loneliness um, is cynicism itself because if you aren't finding um, meaningful relationships with people you're likely to just distrust everybody right because you you're opening yourself up in a way just by being in the world and no one is connecting with you i actually i wrote my like uh my my personal statements before i actually read the article and it's that point is so resounding 
Yeah. It feels that, really that real. Really that was, yeah. That resonated with me a lot, yeah. too. Specifically the idea that, like, the more lonely you are, the more uh, skeptical and cynical you are about social situations generally. Yeah. Further perpetuating your own loneliness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. It seems, yeah, that's the case. So, um, what do we do about it? There's um, really weak ways that we can deal with this. We haven't figured it out yet. But, um, thought substitution techniques are often taught um where maybe you think like i'm really bad at things and that's why i'm lonely you know the minute that you have that thought you're taught to maybe think that i'm actually good at some things and these are the reasons why i like myself so basically anytime you thinking about loneliness as a pathology um and a a a behavioral problem if you can if you can give people the sense that what they're dealing with isn't something like essential to their being, but right. just a, pro- a psychological disorder in a sense that they can start realizing when they have those thoughts, just turn them around. That's the other, the other thing about doubt is that if everything's up to, you know, if everything's up to doubt, if you have a bad thought, you could turn into a good one, you know, For just sure. two sides of the coin. So that's one. And then there's been some governmental programs in Australia and the UK that have been, um, about trying to get men together so like men in sheds is something where <laughs> dudes work on <laughs> diy oh projects God. together that yeah really really sounds it sounds like it a craigslist ad do you guys want to make like, some crystals glow or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. oh god <laughs> but, um that's to me but that why we're like kind of like poking fun at these kind of things is actually indicative of um the problem with these programs in my mind totally yeah. is that it's easy they sound to, ridiculous they just sound mm-hmm. stupid it sounds like why would i want to meet up with other lonely dudes like if you're like if you're like art like you I'm have to not, like, like acknowledge your own sadness it's hilarious because it's like it's hilarious but it's also like what goes through my it's like why like just like pick up games of like rugby or like kickball like i don't want to be a part of that in a way because yeah. it just seems stupid you know like yeah. but that's important because those and the entire purpose of those groups is to combat loneliness and i already have this mechanism and i'm not even that lonely anymore but like i have that mechanism in me where it's like well that's dumb i don't want to be a part of it yeah if you're like super yeah, entrenched absolutely. in loneliness are those programs even effective i don't think so i mean they clearly aren't um just looking at the statistics but this is sort of the um the problem with loneliness i guess anyway i think we should at this point maybe open it up to our own experiences yeah um i'll go ahead and and start um rocket so like i said i I wrote this before i actually wrote the article um i I have like statements prepared the article no, yeah, before I wrote the article. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, shit. Because <laughs> I just found it completely unannounced. <laughs> so that'd be it's me, Stephen Thomas. <laughs> How serendipitous. <laughs> Co- close brother to Clarence Thomas. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Two inside. So, inside. Inside baseball. So my, my feeling, like my, my personal feelings regarding loneliness is that like when you confide in people, you're burdening them. 
Um, like I don't, I don't mind being alone and I feel like my problems are my own. And I feel like the only thing that I get out of sharing those problems with others is at best giving them a sense of satisfaction at like having helped somebody or at worst making their perception of me one of like a weakness or unreliability. Um, also, I, I don't think that anybody other than myself can actually deal with my problems. So I want to be able to assume authorial intent for every action in my life. And I feel like asking for counsel is equivalent to relinquishing control of that authorial intent. So basically like wanting somebody else to blame if that advice doesn't result in an outcome that I want. So in some ways, despite not really feeling hmm. the like emotional toll of loneliness, I, I'm almost, I feel like I'm kind of the poster child for, for the article. Yeah, because that seems like insane. <laughs> that's like that's like absolutely that's absolutely crazy. <laughs> like, um, so and well, then, I get it though, because it's like I mean, uh, yeah, I'm it's not very it's very you, like, like, uh, like no homo like, or anything, you know, just yeah, no homo or anything. But that's like that's sort of like the um, to me. And sorry if I'm just like right bashing too much because it's not. It's more just like there's like a conservative um, aesthetic of like I'm the lone ranger right that you're it's kind powerful. of speaking to in that yeah. sense where it's like i need to lasso this cow on my own and like this is my cow to ranch like like uh but that's it's just like absurd like i like would love if you like came to me with your problems like but it I, I also think that like a lot of my my problems, I don't really feel like I have problems. I think part of like really maybe have, the like, issue of loneliness of, is yeah. like maybe you just start to recontextualize things that are like actual problems as not being problems at all. Yeah, maybe you're just like actually a healthy person. Yeah, well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> like you like know, I definitely don't have any like complaints about my quality of life or anything. But I also like the other thing that I want to say is I have this good friend from Atlanta who like right off the bat we have this very oh, like vulnerable relationship with like we never had any problems talking about our struggles or like isolation or anything like that like right off the bat it was like just kind of you'd find somebody you meet somebody you click um and he talked about how he felt like uh and this is something i don't think the the article talks about but uh he felt like betrayed by his parents because they gave him antidepressants as like a young child because they didn't know how to and it was something that he like explicitly what? stated was a result of them not like like antidepressant like the, uh or like adderall like stuff like that they, uh, well, that's a lot different. There's two sides of the coin on that one. Yeah, but, like, the, he explicitly stated that that was, like, he felt that that was a result of them not having any idea how to raise a boy. So he felt like his, like, rambunctious, like, maleness was sort of the root th of his isolation. Do you think that's, like, fair, though? I mean... I don't think it's fair, like, to... As a parent, I think that, like, you're gonna... You want to... Your natural instinct is to, like, if you don't understand a problem your child is having and somebody offers you a solution that, like is not maybe not as well understood as you would like but like clearly works i don't think it's fair to like blame them but it's also like more to do with his personal feelings regarding the situation well yeah okay i guess you're right like there's always going to be some truth to like the emotions you feel just because they're they're feelings. real so they yeah some truth yeah exactly and but, but like he and i rarely talk now and like despite that that vulnerability and that he and I don't really talk very often, and we do, it's, like, with nowhere near that level of vulnerability. Just, like, a cursory, hi, bye, how are you doing? And we've grown apart in a way that feels sometimes irreconcilable, in part because of the different ways in which we've isolated ourselves. And that lack of trust that, that I was talking about earlier that I think is, like, emblematic of the issue is it's really easy to let that bleed into every relationship in your life and to make you question what the value of vulnerability even is. Like, I still care about this friend, and I, I just don't feel like I have the tools to tell him so in the ways that I did before because I'm not around. And sometimes I feel like 
like I said, this is a friend from Atlanta. Sometimes I feel like moving away from him was a betrayal in its own right. And it's those like That's messy, actually, messy bonds yeah. and the idea that you could invest all this time into a friendship and that person could just move across the country because it's that, what they feel they need to do. Yeah. That makes isolation yeah. so that much emotionally easier than the alternative. That's actually in the article too because um, the author makes the point that um, like millennials are moving around. Yeah, they're moving ar- because uh, of the gig economy basically uh, or freelancing that people are moving around um, a lot more than they used to to find work and that by 2020 50% of the workforce will be freelancing which means that they need to be mobile whoa no shit to, yeah. yeah it's a completely bizarre I, I, I want yeah, to look so to that actually speaks that number, to like a statistic but yeah that's completely wild yeah so yeah but you can't like um, I mean you can't really like we all have to live our own lives you can't like betray you're not betraying someone by like you know no and it's not like a yeah i totally get what you're saying but it's just i move around a lot so it's hard well it's also and to say so for example johnny and i have been friends since we were like 13 or something like that. yeah this is what i want and now totally and johnny and i are now i mean pretty much like you would say that you and i are essentially best friends like we 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 talk to each other every day i mean we have yeah. our going thing. We have we have the group chat with like you, me, and Jacob for the podcast and everything, which has kind of become our outlet for talking. Yeah, because we all talk yeah. together. But we do talk. It's clear we, we all talk, we talk every day. Yeah, exactly. We all talk and every day. That's and, like and, it took nurturing, but oh my it's, God. it yeah. wasn't impossible. And I would be willing to do that with lots of people. It's just like um, a lot of people don't. To me, um, friendship is about ideas in a lot of you know it's like i don't necessarily need to like um like i'm more obsessed with the world of ideas yeah and so if you have things to say that's like really important um that's like the that most important feature of friendships for me is like what what are you offering in terms of ideas and so that can happen over a text box it can happen well over then the there's a, i think there's also something to be said for like okay so what the article kind of talks about a lot when it comes down to these questions of loneliness, one of the things that they're looking for is not just like, do you have fun talking to this person? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's like it is yeah. it is deeper than that because the issue is like you like what the article kind of tries to focus on is, um, you know, if something goes horribly wrong, who can you call with no shame? Right. Like that was that was something I found. No. Yeah. Because that's totally. kind of what they were getting at was like with whom can do you feel like you can be entirely and wholly vulnerable right and i think that like you know that not to be mushy mushy but i i definitely would say that like i am i am fortunate for having johnny as my friend and i think johnny might say the same about our his friendship towards me because like i think that i can you know johnny and i we've been creative for together for so long that it's kind of become like a a vulnerability exercise yeah the and problem so there's with like a degree that like yeah. if something went horribly wrong in my life i would have like no issue calling you for example right even if i were to ask for like some specific help now what i can say though is that i have yet to develop that kind of relationship with anyone essentially other than you right like you know, i have very few people yeah. that i would not feel but you have your parents very... too which oh, is oh yeah, yeah, yeah and 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 i think that like family and i have britney that's the other thing you and know britney, i'm in a long right, yeah. i'm in a Duh, long your girlfriend. like yeah. <laughs> up relationship so the thing is that um but i can definitely tell you that uh and it's funny this kind of if we're talking about kind of personal experiences yeah i want you I'd to get into yours that, too like, 
so like uh, law school for me was particularly isolating. So the thing is that I had spent, you know, when, when I was living in New York or when I was going to college in Tallahassee, I was like, you know, I would, uh, I was always frustrated with myself for not hanging out with people enough. But looking back at it, I always did like go out and I did all these things. I did this, I did that, I did, you know. True. Uh, but the thing is that when, when you start to really kind of like immerse yourself in some sp- like specialty, right? What you've done is you've kind of like taken yourself outside of a particular, a particular like social grouping, right? The social grouping of just like, um, uh, of of kind of being in, like general. Kind of, it's like you. Yeah. There's a category of specificity that you. There's like a kinship that you feel with those people, and it makes you maybe lose a part of like what makes your general yeah. like friendships. Yeah, exactly. This is it. Yeah, my relationship to like my general friendships changed a lot yeah when i started to get oh i totally like, get kind that. of more into myself and isolated in some in some other specialty right now the thing is that um for me the way that this kind of like loneliness question manifests itself like you know obviously like i said you know i i, I my girlfriend Brittany and i have lived together for like a long time i mean we've been together for five years almost six years and we've lived together for four or something like that so the thing is that there's um, I, you know, I can always go to Brittany to confide, obviously, because that's like how a relationship should work. Yeah. Like. But the thing is that, um, there is always, there's always this underlying thing about go, uh, uh, like my loneliness comes from the fact of like, you know, it's FOMO fear of missing out to a certain extent. My loneliness has such a, a uh, uh, it, its counterpart, its cohort is my anxieties. Mm-hmm. Right in many ways and my anxieties about social situations generally manifest themselves as thoughts uh, as thoughts of cynicism more than anything so people will invite me to go do something right and my first thought will be like i mean i live in miami right so what i get invited to is yo dude do you want to stay up till four o'clock in the morning and go see this you want to go to pulse like you know Hold fucking yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. You want to hold fu- watch this DJ hold session for six hours? You know, <laughs> it's like no, dude, I'm not, I'm not exactly that interested in going out and doing that kind of thing. And similarly, there's it's either that or it's going to some posh event like in Miami Beach that I feel very out of place in. Like I always feel so out of place at these like really swanky events. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing is that I always approach these with such cynicism when people will invite me to them. And then the second I go and I do it, I get out there and I'm a social fucking butterfly. Do right. You know you're just I mean? a great like time, I have like the yeah. best time. And I think that Johnny is the same way. Often I remember, I remember when Johnny and I were living together, there'd be times when one of us would be resistant to going to do something. And then we go do something and both of us would just be like bubbly and kind of like over the top. Right. And that might even be because of my social anxiety. Right. That might even be because I'm trying to overcompensate. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason that I feel so happy once I'm out. Right. But I think that the, uh, like this kind of issue manifests itself for me in a tension between my own distaste for uh, so much of the vapid social situations that we can place ourselves in. Yeah. But that's intention with the fact that like once i get there i feel really relieved yeah <laughs> right yeah i totally I know think you that mean. that's i yeah. think that's funny because it's really difficult to like it's really difficult to force yourself who feels um 
so anxious or so cynical or so down about something, you know, like, oh, mm. th- that's it's going to be a bunch of really dumb people talking about really dumb shit. And I am going to be like unhappy. Right. And then you get out there and you're like, yeah, dude, crystals are cool. <laughs> I <laughs> love turquoise jewelry. Yeah, exactly. I love turquoise. I love Arizona. You know, like these kinds of things. right? <laughs> but so like, you know, I, I think that that's for me the way that it manifests itself. And I guess that that's the point. It's not like I have some grand thesis. But what I will say is that what stood out to me in this article particularly was that relationship between um the the cynical view of social situations which actually for me is very closely related to a social anxiety right and then the relationship between that and the relief you get once you actually break through it and the fact that so often you never despite the fact that you have all this evidence to show that you will be very happy when you go out and you go out with these people that even you might have shoulder like you know shoulder to shoulder relationships with it it might give you some sort of satisfaction but beforehand, before you go do it, you're like, no, that's going to be so dumb. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's so that for me, that stood out to me a lot. That's and like the crux. So of I kind of ask you guys, like, do you guys feel socially anxious, or am I like the only one here that's like, um, like anxious I, about people? Uh, oh, Johnny, you can go of, first. I mean, well, I mean, my story of loneliness is mostly has to do with my like basic house arrest for years, um, yeah. where I was on probation for like three years and i wasn't allowed to leave my county i wasn't really supposed to go do anything except go to work and go back to my house yeah so it was yeah i just like basically got really lonely not because really the social isolation so much but because it was so shameful yeah um and, but a lot of that shame was, like, self-imposed, and that's, like, the... Uh... Yeah, oh, yeah, I just wasn't very... I wasn't, like, I was a little too young. I was a little too, like, um, like, uh, I just thought too much about my own situation, like, in the... Like, I thought, like, it was the end of the world, and so I really, like, aggrandized the moment more than I should have. I think if it happened to me now, I'd be a lot more capable of dealing with it, but at the time, I was dealing with the breakup, and then I'd deal with this, and it was just very, like, it felt like the world was being removed from me. Um, and so my social anxiety came from, I don't feel it anymore because I've been, like, re-socialized into the world. But at the time when you're spending so much time, like, having to be in your own house and where I worked, I didn't talk to anybody. I just, like, went to work in an office and didn't have anyone to socialize with so there were like long stretches of time where i wouldn't talk at all um and so like when you're in those situations when you talk to people it's like you're surprised um and that can be anxious because you know it shouldn't be a surprise when people talk to you but you're also aware of it so yeah i think social anxiety does have to deal with loneliness but my own experience i mean like i also like in college too there were times where i was you know um i also was being surrounded by lots of socially anxious people and so the conversations and the relationships themselves were fraught mirrored by yeah they were fraught with 
crazy problems that are <laughs> not normal. Just like but, existed uh, <laughs> as a as a direct result of like everybody talking yeah. about their anxiety. Yeah, right. Which is actually like something to say because like like if you are not lonely, it means that you've probably like you feel a connection with other people, and if other people are like presenting their inability to connect with you like it doesn't matter if like you're involved in a society um that's well populated if they are neurotic entirely then you're not going to be able to connect with people either you know like loneliness isn't something you're going to be able to accomplish on your like i think now um it's it's great because i have my freedom back and i'm doing i'm using it um so i can be alone in venice um and not feel lonely because yeah. i'm exercising my freedom mm-hmm. and i have people to report back to about my experiences um that seems to me like a really healthy balance i love my alone time yeah alone time and loneliness are not oh no, not the same not at all yeah yeah absolutely. and like yeah. me like i could you know like i this isn't some like flight of fancy i could like live on my own exploring things but i do need to report back to people and yeah i need to be part of a society it just you know there's a lot of flack about social media because also um there are statistics that say that if um you're trying to replace your social connections with social media um connections that it's not effective yeah and i do think that's true because there's lots of like devilish ways in which social media fucks with your head like oh yeah it's it's you know it's like people it's it's like you're comparing your everyday life to people at their best yeah in a lot of ways and that's really the fundamental issue but there are other ways in which like it can be a tool um you know i think texting is a vehicle for social media and um that's revolutionized the way that communication works yeah and i think if you can use it right and if you're honest about the ways in which you're culpable or like you're likely to start exhibiting feelings of loneliness you can curb it if you're very straight on so like if you feel uh, maybe you want to really express a moment of joy or a moment of shame or something um but you don't want to because of fear of something well usually it's better to just go ahead and do it because the relationships that you know like relationships grow by um communicating those emotions Hmm. you know so like i won't like if i feel like overjoyed i'll text mark and like he may think i'm being ridiculous but Uh, it's so funny that you would even think that there's like it's obviously obviously i wouldn't like you and I text all the time and talk all the time yeah. and I wouldn't like do it if it didn't like bring me joy too. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, so yeah, it's like it, whenever it, you do that, that or I do like that, crazy there's a, there's an awareness that like we're being emotional and oh, what yeah. it is, is really, I guess like I, as an art, like a, I, I'm just openly artistic. Um, mostly for the sanity of my own emotional life. Right. Because, yeah. um, I think a lot of like pe- a lot of men specifically, um, they have to sort of become artists in a way to be recognized um, as an emotional person, mm-hmm. right? Like, obviously, if I'm writing songs and I'm writing and presenting it with people, I'm an emotional person. So, like, that's baggage I have to take with me when I'm like in 
circles where it's not cool to be emotional. Also, you're but like it gives you're like explicitly personal in your songwriting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Which right. I I'm very like, explicit. Yeah. yeah, so like I do a lot in terms of like my own. I don't think I'm more emotional than other men. It's just that my way of um, expressing my emotional life. I figured. I guess it just happened that I figured out a great way to do it was through my musical ability or my um, writing ability. You know, like that yeah, was poetry. a way. Yeah, your poetry and lyrics, I think, are your Right. Poetry. So that was a way of doing it. Um, but a lot of people don't have that. Um, but that's kind of why, like, passions and hobbies are important because you can start funneling your emotions in that way. And then what happens is once you've identified a way to um express your emotional life there's usually communities that formulate around that so like for writing you know like if you're like a musician you find other people who want to be in a band if you know like even like something like rock climbing can be like an emotional outlet because you're like you're you're like feeling adrenaline and you want to feel that with other people um so that's to me like what the basis that's what community is about it's about expressing emotion in a communal way where you feel comfortable expressing um, your passions and your, you know, just the fact that you want to be a person. But um, it, it's it's just interesting, I guess, because um, I want to talk about gaming in a sense because it seems like a lot of, like, disaffected males turn to gaming addictions. Yeah, for sure. I think that, like, the times in my life when I feel the most aimless or like when i am not when i'm like experiencing creative issues i can't write i can't draw i can't you know to some extent like i don't feel like i'm innovating in the kitchen you'll find me playing yeah. dota 2 for six hours straight <laughs> right which and is it doesn't wild help. because like, <laughs> like these games like yeah, it doesn't it make anything better <laughs> like, yeah but often, it's weird because worse. like these are also communities organize with organizing principles right like where mm-hmm. there are people involved that you play with yeah and you're just being like inundated with potential friendships at all times when you're playing these games and a lot of like i only bring it up because mmos esports they all like boast numbers like in the tens of millions across the world um so it it's clear that people are like moving towards these um communities but the communities themselves are like profoundly toxic yeah it's 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 pretty unbelievable it's 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 like communities only like i guess my point is communities form because people have shared passions which means they have they shared expressions of emotion or expressions of emotion which means that they're yearning outside of their loneliness or their lonely inhibition or their lonely impulses yeah um but surprisingly from a uh, you know just like an outside view modern communities which tend to be things like um gaming or even dating like online dating they tend to become like profoundly toxic yeah which is it's just so antithetical to the reason why we are attracted to these communities in the first place and they poison the well so to speak in terms of um people thinking that community is a place to combat loneliness right that to me seems to be a important part of the epidemic that we don't speak to or we speak to enough i mean you know we have melania trump fighting for cyberbullying 
but <laughs> for like in favor of. Yeah, he's right. Yeah. Well, well yeah, she's married to the greatest internet troll of all time. I mean, his trolling ascended him to the presidency. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think but it's amazing. Right, but these are you know this is to me um, a, a modern feature of loneliness. I think um, the case isn't. I mean, the case that we read in this article is like um, even at the point of 1994, before the um, revolution of modern internet. Um, connectivity yeah connectivity that male loneliness was still an uh a unique epidemical interest to um people like to psychologists yeah and this has to be exasperated by the fact that um lots of communities are forming online but the formation of them is it's, um, it's, characterized by homophobia right is characterized by unfeelingness and characterized by trolling like these yeah. are not like they're, they're internet memes but they're also reality they're 100 there was dangerous. a game there was a game of dota 2 that i played uh like recently within the last month or so where within like not before the game actually began there's like a picking phase the per, well, there's a person on my team that said okay uh i guess i'm gonna lose another game before anybody had said anything else and then the rest of the game which was like a 30 minute game talked about how he was like suicidal how his like life was like in shambles how his parents were going to disown him this was like his his outlet was like talking to four random strangers and the response of the four random strangers were like hey faggot why don't you keep playing like just Uh, we haven't lost the game yet i just need you to shut the fuck up and play yeah it's so bizarre that shit happens on the internet in these very strange ways like yeah, um, just not even gaming. You'll, you'll right? find 4chan. Reddit. Yeah. Right? You, 4chan, you know what I mean? Like, 4chan, Reddit, like all that stuff. You see that happen, and, and it's so interesting. Maybe it's that, like, I think it, maybe it's because you feel like you can be you can be vulnerable because nobody actually gives a shit. Gives a shit, yeah. Maybe you, you don't have, actually you do have, want somebody to give a shit. The problem is that, um, I think you I need guess, somebody I, to, I to think, actually, like, swash the loneliness. That guy What you're talking about what you're talking about is really interesting because anonymity gives you basically cover to like speak your deepest your real thought. which can be it's, but usually it's but like the problem with like emotions is like that they don't unbelievably cruel yeah. or unbelievably vulnerable and i don't think yeah. either are helpful <laughs> but emotions yeah so like if you have anonymity you have the cover to talk about your deepest feelings but the problem is that like feelings are like necessarily intrinsic intrinsically related to the person who are who is feeling them yeah and so if you have this anonymous ability to express your emotions you're sort of denying something fundamental to emotionality itself which is that it's tied to your personhood and so if you get the huh. sense that you do you know what i, I like yeah, i know that really totally have, like, makes a, sense that no i that, yeah. like no it's perfectly coherent yeah it's just like i don't know i i think it's in you know, and this is the problem with uh, internet cultures is that um, you're never really like. Let's say you, you decide to join a, a a rugby gang, like we were talking about earlier, or men in sheds or something, right? Like you have to deal with men in sheds. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, but if you like, you show up to a a, a meetup, right? You have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
sorry. Oh man, I'm crying. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> it's so lovely. It's beautiful, right? Yeah. We should probably yeah. This should probably be the last point we made. <laughs> I get yeah. I don't know. It probably got derailed a no, little. No, no. But go but ahead. I, go ahead. No, this has been. Fun. I guess you have to you have to confront your own. Um, participation in your own feelings if you show up to a meetup because you're the person who's showing up yeah your face is attached to your feelings your face is attached like you're 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 the one showing up to the shed (laughs) yeah but like if you're online or whatever like you can just you know you're just like a fucking you're dust in the wind you're not you show up to the show (laughs) you are merely your avatar which is your favorite anime character you're not you're never confronting yourself in your own feelings or your own (sighs) utterances so yeah. anyway, I mean that—that's probably like an exasperation on um, online gaming loneliness epidemic. But I guess we still did not cut this down to under two hours. No, in fact, this may be the longest one yet. <laughs> well, we kind of we we were all looking forward to this, and even before we this, we, we I were think all we actually acknowledged really before funny. the show this is probably going to be a really jokes, long episode. You know? Yeah, like, we were all too many like, jokes, too many yeah, jokes, too many jokes. Or... no such thing as too many jokes. Yeah, that was the other thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, just um, yeah. enough jokes. <laughs> All right, so uh, do you guys have any yeah recommendations for the? Hey, why don't you shut the fuck up and let me host? I'm not the host. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not main host. All right, guys, Sorry, guys. Do you have any recommendations for the viewers before we sign off? Who do you want? Uh, Johnny, why don't you start first since you're so eager to talk? Okay, well, yeah, and you're in <laughs> Venice, like watching amazing movies. Yeah, so that's what I want to talk about. I know every. This isn't a recommendation you can just sort of, like, get to right away. Um, But I'm at the Venice Film Festival. I'm just seeing amazing movies all over the place. Um, It will come out probably on VOD um, in the next few months. It's unfortunate it can't make a run at Best Feature for the Oscars because it's just too small. But there's this film, Lean on Pete that I would recommend whenever it comes out that you should watch. It's um, Andrew High is the director. He's the guy who's responsible for looking, the HBO show. Did you ever oh, watch that, Mark? Oh, I, yeah, I didn't know that that's who that same person was. Yeah, so um, he makes this movie. It's so different than looking. It's so much better. It's so much better. It's about um, this kid. Um, it's his father and this kid. um uh, his mother's just left the situation. They're very poor and like Portland. the situation from uh, like Jersey Shore. Mike, like the situation left, like, Sorrentino. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. I don't know about Jersey Shore. That's a lot. <laughs> well, come on. Everybody else will find that funny, but fucking. Joke. I'm not saying it's not funny. I just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but Fine, um, continue. Yeah. Anyway, it's this amazing. Um, it's amazing movie about like the journey about um animal dignity about um like a um orphanhood homelessness issue that we don't talk enough about um you know a lot of kids are born to poverty in this country or in america i guess i'm not in america right now but <laughs> it's it's and but it, it's told with that kind of like looking like the like if you've watched looking you know that it has this like empathetic direction where it's it really feels for the characters even yeah. you know even though that show sort of what it wasn't about anything worth talking about really i guess i mean it sort of was but it just like was a sex in the city for queer men and like sex in the city isn't a good show 
So why are we doing <laughs> Anyway, point is, I have a lot to say about this. You can check out um, my review for it on my blog. But oh, we'll put it in the show notes, right, Jacob? Oh, yeah, we'll yeah, we should show, add the, yeah. the whole blog to the show notes, but that review. Yeah, because I'm doing reviews of every movie I see except for this one movie I saw. Yeah, <laughs> what was I, you your – you left a great Facebook comment. Hold on, I'll find it real quick. It was it was this it was this film called uh, like Una Familia, which was like it was the just like it imagines like a computer was like let me take all of the worst tropes from every foreign feature film <laughs> that you can imagine and let me just like make yeah. let me write and direct and produce a script that was that yeah all of the other all of his other Facebook comments every time he watches a movie are like like praise for the movie <laughs> this most recent one great. is They've meanwhile been, they, Una Famiglia false, is but... the afterbirth of every foreign film cliche imaginable <laughs> not gonna waste anyone's time writing a review for this <laughs> opposite so, yeah, of a recommendation yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was just it was horrible it was horrifyingly horrible but, uh, <laughs> I've been writing reviews for everything else uh, it would mean a lot if you check it out but this film in particular, I think, is the film to be, even though um, I'm writing a review right now for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is uh, Martin McDowell's new movie yeah. that I just saw a couple I'm hours ago. And it's, it's not, you know, a lot of his, I just, well, just read the review. I'm going to really think a lot about it. It's probably going to be really long because it was just, <laughs> uh, it was the most, one of the most thought provoking movies just at a glance, mm-hmm. like at first viewing yeah. that I've had because it had so much it had so many subtle things to say about revenge and violence which actually ties into our anger episode that i think i'm going to use some of the nuggets that we uh mined from that segment yeah to really talk about so anyway that's my recommendation lean on pete um it's really great mark you got anything for us yeah dude so i watched i I, this is kind of uh, more of a standard recommendation but i watched the entire new season of narcos on saturday just oh, so I'm all making you rewatch it. it with me. Oh no, Johnny! I wanted. To, I, I. I had to. I have to resist rewatching it now. <laughs> like I, I. Honestly, I'm perfect happy because we're, we're because gonna it was it. so. Oh yeah, and I'm gonna have such a great time. Or, I'm so yeah. excited because we watched the first season together too, right? Mm-hmm. Remember when you came to yep. when you came to Miami? And so the yep. thing is that uh, I am. I. I just. I really was happy with this new season. Because after the second season, when they stop, um, you know, once Pablo dies and the, the whole, like, uh, gravity of the show has kind of um, disappeared, right? The show revolved around that story for, so, for those first two seasons. And once that was gone, you kind of didn't know where it was going to go. And uh, what's his name? Wagner Mora? Is that his name? Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's Mora. Right or you know somebody somebody who speaks speak Portuguese, Portuguese can yeah exactly yeah yeah but Wagner Mora or yeah. whatever Wagner Vora nobody yeah, exactly. nobody yeah. learned to speak that language please it's gross yeah. it's such a gross language <laughs> so, <laughs> sounds like no it, no Portuguese is beautiful you're you wrong it's yourself. it sounds no, like yeah, it sounds like Spanish being spoken by like a Uzbekistani toddler what are you talking about that sounds fantastic <laughs> I would love whoa, to whoa, my mom uh, yeah. my but mom you know I, I, okay I love the Portuguese language whatever fucking Jacob says <laughs> I don't but know I'm not talking about, about fucking Portuguese right now I'm talking about narcos so the whole thing is that uh, <laughs> Wagner Wagner Mora was just so singular as as Pablo in those first two seasons that I was very anxious about where the show would go after that. And Johnny and I had said this um, uh, in our group text 
you, you know, Johnny said specifically that, oh, yeah, they're going to lean more on Pedro Pascal, which will be a good thing. And Pedro Pascal is fantastic, right? And he's great in it, too. But what was actually great about the way that this season went and the reason that I had so much fun watching it and why I couldn't stop watching it was because it's a true ensemble cast. It's really not just about Pedro Pascal. Everybody kind That's of... That's really good it, it to was, hear. It was, it was great. I was so impressed by all of the actors. I really, really was. And particularly because that show is it leans on its actors so much because it's not some like artfully executed um, uh, prestige show in the sense that it's going to have all of this deep meaning or have these really, um, you know, kind of ambiguous, surreal moments or have some like incredible cinematography. It's really not about that. It's about telling this great story in some compelling and exciting way, right? And one of the things that's required to do that to still have, you know, some sort of kind of conventional nonfiction story be really compelling is to have the actors really draw you in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the guy that plays Pacho, who is the, the guy, the gay guy with the mustache, the, uh, the uh, guy from the Cali cartel, he was amazing the entire season. I really enjoyed his performance. Shit. And I'm, I'm excited to, to watch this. Dude, I can't wait to watch it with you, Johnny. In Amsterdam. But the thing is that maybe we'll going, talk about it. Like, yeah, maybe uh, we'll talk about. Yeah, I don't maybe know. We'll do it might be too late, but I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll hard see with these Netflix on. shows. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But the thing is that um, I would recommend that uh, the new season of Narcos to anybody, and whoever has not seen the first two seasons of Narcos, go and watch those, and then watch this third season because all of it, like overall. It's one of my favorite shows to watch. I just have, it's so exciting. I have so much fun, right? And I can kind of just keep putting episodes on. It's the perfect binge show. Nice. Everybody should watch the new season of Narcos. It was fantastic. Yeah, my uh, my only recommendation is, uh, I've been, I'm sure you guys already know what it is because I've been talking about it nonstop for the last week, but uh, Liars just released a new album. Um, yeah. And it's fucking awesome. Um, they're one of my favorite bands, and now it's just it's a, a crazy album. It's like, it's just like a Liars is a crazy band. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is like what it's like seventeen years it, of making music. I mean, since like, am I Sunday. weird for thinking it? It was like uh, like Ariel Pink versus Beck. Y- yeah, I think I, I guess if you haven't like heard any other Liars, that album maybe. Well, cause I mean that album particular. Angus like Andrews, the, the who's like always kind of been the de facto frontman of the band, just like it's his first solo album basically. So like, there's a guy that he's collaborated with since the very beginning, uh, Aaron Hemphill, who's been there for every single album, and they had like a uh, I don't think it was like a creative dispute. It sounded like it was an amicable breakup, but he like basically produced his album in the wake of that, and then. So the, the album is just a lot about actually kind of ties into the whole. Uh, my feeling thing. is that uh, there's not such a thing as like an amicable breakup, and some other guy get like one of the guys gets to keep the band name. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like, That's so true. It's an amicable breakup if it's like, hey, like let's all just like like use other names. Okay, like, so if, maybe like an amicable breakup <laughs> in that if if this is this is like the uh, like the male friendship equivalent to the uh, the new like Dirty Projectors album, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that was not amicable. So it's like. Clearly less amicable, amicable than like <laughs> amicable in the sense that like he's not <laughs> keep your fucking name <laughs> <laughs> but uh no i thought it was a crazy album like uh there was like a lot of like metallic 
like uh, yeah, like the soundscaping is crazy. Yeah, a lot of it is like the it, it'll go from like this like super dark electronica into like uh, like lounge music sounds. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. No, it's just, yeah. uh, the it production was... is crazy, and I I love that band. I, the I love thing his is, voice, is like we 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 were thinking about or like Jacob had like uh, presented the idea that we talk about it. Yeah, he suggested it, but it like. <laughs> I I uh, I'm skeptical of its listenability on like multiple runs. Oh really? You know, like it. Well, because it was I was like it, I I listened to it. At, you know, I was waking up, and so I decided to put it on because I wanted to stay in bed for an hour later. Great and then, music. Like, by the time Great it was music. done, my clothes were on and I was out the door. It was like <laughs> it was just insanity. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's. I mean, it was an interesting exercise and like does pop music need to be catchy or does it need to be interesting and i was out the door before i had a, a sense of an answer and then <laughs> we decided twin peaks was a better i don't know i don't know yeah, like also it's just twin peaks happened and we had to talk about that so. yeah we had to talk about Can't that not. i thought it would have been yeah so yeah i'll throw a, i'll throw a link to the, there's like a they have the whole like album stream on youtube i'll throw a link to that in the show notes we're gonna have a lot of show notes today <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah yeah but good everybody good. i gotta we keep want, track yeah. of them more links, more SEO. <laughs> yep. That works. Yeah, totally. That's exactly <laughs> how it works. Maybe we can get that me undies endorsement, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> what was it you so said bad, last? I'm out of underwear. What is the last thing you, that you said on the last episode? It was just like a joke everybody missed. I listened to the last podcast and it was like, <laughs> me, it was like me, me undies. A, no, it was a better way to. It was me no, but it was like me undies changing the way you eat or something. No, like no. That. It's, it's, it's me undies, a better way to cook. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for listening. And uh, again, if you can, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, Have a great day, and we will see you next week. Peace.